Well, today's Palm Sunday, what we recognize as Christians to be the beginning of the Passion Week. Palm Sunday is where Jesus and his disciples came into Jerusalem, and many call this the triumphal entry of Jesus, in which he would go into the temple and he would continue to teach, but then later on he would be betrayed by one of his disciples after a dinner in which he talked of a sacrifice that would be made. We call this Maundy Thursday. Please join us once again, 7 o'clock on Thursday. And then on Friday, he would then be crucified. We called this Good Friday. I asked um, a couple of the youth group kids on Wednesday, I said, why do we call the Friday when Jesus was murdered Good Friday? And one of the students very appropriately said, because on Good Friday, we were reconciled back to God. And it is. That's the truth. And then, of course, a week from today, we will celebrate the climax of all holidays for Christians, what we call Resurrection Sunday, or Easter Sunday, where we will celebrate that our king is not dead, that our king rose from the dead, and he reigns on high even now. Amen? <coughs> Excuse me. But to fully understand the significance of Passion Week, I think we need to understand the ministry, the lifetime ministry, the fleshly ministry of Jesus. Those three some odd decades that he spent ministering. And it started very controversial, right? He was born in Bethlehem in a manger, which was controversial because there was a prophecy about a baby being born in Bethlehem that would be king of the Jews. So the angels declared that, yes, this boy who was born in Bethlehem, his name is Jesus, and he is going to be the king of the Jews. And from day one, people wanted to kill him. People wanted to kill this little baby, swallowed up, all cute. And from day one, powerful people saw the need to kill him. Why? Because he had the title of king of the Jews. He would go on and do many great, great things throughout his life, but what ultimately got him killed was the de declaration that he was the king of the Jews. So we have his, his birth and his death, both starting with king of the Jews, ending with king of the Jews, and then this time in between, which we'll call his, his earthly reign as the king. But I had a problem as I was preparing the sermon this morning, or the, for the sermon this morning, as thinking of Jesus as a king. I'm just being honest with you. I have no problem picturing Jesus as a prophet because as a prophet, he is coming to us to reveal the nature of God. It says that he is the word of God who became flesh, and that's what prophets do. They reveal the word of God. I have no problem picturing him like that. I have no problem picturing Jesus as a priest. What a priest would do is he would provide a sacrifice for the people so that they could be in right standing with God. No problem with that. Jesus provided a sacrifice himself to be our great high priest. No problem. But where I started to come to a problem was me picturing him as a king. I was having trouble. Like, how is he a king in my life? I know he's my atonement. I know he's revealed the nature of God to me, but is, how is he my king? So I did what you do when you need information. I Googled it. I didn't Google how Jesus was my king, but I did Google famous kings. And I was surprised at what came up. 
This is the king of burgers, a.k.a. the Burger King. Go back. We're not done with him. Slightly terrifying, but nonetheless is wearing a crown and is a robe and even has some king bling. But that was not the image I was looking for when I was picturing a king, so you spoiled it. No, I'm just kidding. Mufasa. A little bit better, right? Everybody loves Mufasa. If you haven't seen it, spoil No, I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. It's a great movie. But it's a great, he's a great king, right? He's honestly a role model that I take after as a, as a father. He's a king who wants to pass along everything that he has to his son. He wants to protect his son. He's a good king, but the problem is for me is he, that he's an animal. So it's not really what I'm looking for. The next one is a little controversial. Some would call him the king. This is LeBron James. Now, LeBron James, I will not argue with this, was probably the greatest athlete uh, we've ever known. And we have the opportunity. I'm with you, whoever said that. We have the opportunity to witness him playing, and he's accepted this role as the king. They call him King James. I call him the traitor. And his reign only lasted until he left Miami, so his monarch has ended. And then lastly, the last image I want to show you of a king is the king. The king. Uh, and this is the king of rock and roll, of course, Elvis Presley, whom we all love and adore. Look at that handsome face. But all these kings had something in common. They had a, a, a reign over some sort of dominion. The Burger King over his burgers. Mufasa over all the light touches. LeBron James over basketball and sports in general and, and the king of rock and roll over music. They had a, a certain reverence about them at their craft or in their kingdom. And of course, there's been great kings on this earth, kings who have led uh, their nations um, to victori through victorious battles. And, but still, I was having trouble picturing Jesus as my king. When I picture Jesus, I picture him either in a manger like at Christmas time. I picture him uh, under a tree with teaching kids and a, maybe like a, a goat or a lamb next to him. I could, picture, I could picture Jesus walking on water. And I definitely could picture Jesus on a cross, which is what we most identify Jesus with. But as a king, I have trouble. Maybe, you know, it's just because I've grown up in America and I'm not used to serving a king. But I had trouble imagining him as my king. But the Lord helped me out. It was providentially, I was listening to the radio on Monday uh, afternoon. And I listen to sports radio when I don't want to listen to anything else. I like to drive because it relaxes me. And so I'll put on sports radio when I don't want to have to like, critically think too much about anything. Just kind of mindlessly, you know. Not doze off. I was going to say doze off, but I'm driving. Um, just, just to relax. And one of the shows I listen to is a nationally syndicated show that is actually um, recorded locally. His name is Dan Lebetard. He used to write for the Miami Herald. He's very well known. Um, and he's uh, just a very smart guy. Uh, he, he really brings up polarizing topics. It's not just stats. It's not wins and losses. He talks about politics. And he talks about race and, and equality. And I really enjoy the show. 
And so he brought on a guy on his show on Monday, and his name is Scott Hansen. Now, Scott Hansen, if you're an NFL fan, you know who he is. He is the host of a show called The Red Zone. Now, what The Red Zone is, is during the NFL season, from 1 to 8 p.m., there's a channel called The Red Zone that just shows all the touchdowns of all the NFL games going on simultaneously. So what that means is if you're a big NFL fan, you are like glued to your couch from one to eight because it's like touchdown, 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 touchdown. It's all the good stuff about a football game, all the glorious moments. Now the thing about Scott Hansen that people talk about is he is literally on camera or in talking from one to eight. And they, some people think he's inhuman because he never goes to the bathroom. He's one to eight, Scott Hansen is on the NFL or Red Zone channel. So there's another channel that's on DirecTV that rivals that, and Dan Levitard brought Scott Hansen on his radio show to ask him if he had a feud with the other guy who has a show simultaneously, same content. And so he says, Scott, this is Dan talk, he says, Scott, don't lie to me, I know you hate him. Whatever the guy's name is. And Scott goes, no, I don't hate him, you know, I know how tough his job is, I have the same thing, same kind of job. He goes, and Dan, trying to get good radio, trying to produce ratings, trying to create a polarizing interview, says, Scott, tell me the truth. I know you hate him. You've got to hate him. He steals ratings from him. He goes, no, Dan, I don't. They go back and forth. They go back and forth. And finally, Scott goes, Dan, let me stop you. He's called in on the radio. So nationally syndicated. Scott Hansen goes, Dan, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a Christian. And Dan goes, Okay. He goes, I'm a Christian, and what that means for me is I have strict orders from my king to love. He says, Dan, I have been given a commandment to love. And that little sentence by this guy on national radio blew my mind. Because the way that he thinks about Jesus as his king is a way that I've never thought about Jesus. He thinks of Jesus as being his true king in which if he is not obeying his king, he's in trouble. His life is not being fulfilled in the way that it could be if he's not obeying his king. He says, I have strict orders from my king to love. Therefore, I love. That simple. And here I am, like, oh, Jesus, thank you for your revealing of all the nature of God and for sacrificing your sin, but king over my life, like of everything? Because there's certain things that I may want to enjoy doing or certain ways that I want to act or behave that are really not aligned with your whole kingdom idea. I found myself convicted. Is Jesus my king? You know, Jesus spent three decades serving this kingdom his father's kingdom, and he especially had a love for this city. It was called the City of Peace, or if you break it down, City of Peace is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. When uh, he was a young boy, he was found in the temple, and his parents were looking for him, and he said, don't you know I'd be in the temple? I love this place. This is my father's house. And he was teaching as a 12-year-old, reasoning with rabbis and theologians, and he's, he was there because he loved it. He loved being in the central place of worship of his father. It was exciting for him. And we know that Jesus and his family would travel to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate the Passover. And he loved going to Jerusalem. But here, in our text this morning, 
he was going to visit Jerusalem for the last time. And he knew it. He knew that this would be the final visitation to this earthly city of Jerusalem. He knew what was about to happen. He actually knew that there was a gruesome fate that lied ahead of him, that he would be falsely accused of blasphemy for declaring himself to be the king of the Jews, <coughs> that he would be killed. But a couple chapters earlier, it tells us the mindset of Jesus as he prepared to go to this city for the last time. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, when they drew near, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus had healed, he had teached, he had preached, he had walked on water, he had raised dead men from the dead, he had turned water into wine, he had fed thousands, he had calmed storms like that. And upon his ministry, he says, boys, we're going to Jerusalem. Something I got to do. He says, he set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face towards his death sentence, sentence and said, let's go, boys. It's time. And they headed to Jerusalem. And along the way, he continued to heal. He continued to teach. And Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. So our text this morning, we find the disciples and we find our, uh, Jesus on the outskirts of Jerusalem, um, on the Mount of, Mount of Olivet, Mount of Olives, and they're waiting to go into Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles, uh, joke, that's my Bible, chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, verse 28, we'll read this in a couple different uh, portions, but starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, this is Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. We're going to pause there. So before Jesus enters the city, he does something a little out of character for him. He asks for something. Jesus is a provider. Jesus is a healer. Jesus is a teacher. Very rarely does he say, Hey, guys, I need something. But he does. He says, guys, I need you to go get me a donkey. It's going to be right over there in this village that's over there. It's going to be tied up to this, this uh, post. You're going to untie it for me. Somebody's probably going to come ask you what you're doing, and then I want you to say this. So Jesus, in his divine knowledge, sends these two disciples. They go exactly where he told them to go. Voila, there's a donkey there. They untie it, and as they're untying the donkey, somebody says, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And so whoever this, the owners of the donkey was, some people believe it was, it was the Lazarus' family, so that would make a lot of sense, like here he goes, the donkey. But no matter who it was, they knew that the Lord needed it and had no contest to uh, the, bringing it to the Lord. So they said, go ahead, take the donkey. So they brought the donkey to him. So here we see that Jesus is setting the stage. Why a donkey? Why does Jesus want a donkey? He finally asks for something. He says, bring me a donkey an animal of burden, a work animal, an animal of suffering. 
And what he was doing was he was setting the stage, gathering his prop, and declaring that he is the prophesied Messiah. What do you mean? By mounting a donkey, he is declaring that he has come to fulfill the prophecy that's found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, by saying, bring me a donkey, is saying, remember what Zechariah said? It's me, guys. No problem. The disciples are with him. They say, yeah, we know, Lord. Okay. So in reverence, they throw a cloak over the donkey. And Jesus could have easily have mounted it the donkey himself, but it says that the disciples hoisted him up, reverence for their king, and put him on the donkey. Now, it's interesting, kings back in these days, these ancient days, uh, kings would ride into cities really in two different ways. Number one is they'd ride in on a donkey, okay? Now, if you saw a king riding in on a donkey, the city would, you know, would be like, whoa, whoa, it's okay. It's just on a donkey. He's coming in peace. That's what it meant. So if you came riding in on a donkey, you were coming to say, I come and I bring peace. I come in peace. You see my donkey. I come in peace. I've come to bring peace. The other way kings would ride into a city was on a white war horse. Now, a white war horse signified this. You were either coming in to conquer that city, this mighty steed which I'm galloping upon, or you were riding back to your home city saying, I just conquered this city. And you were arriving back in victory. Those are the two ways. A donkey representing peace and the war horse representing victory. So Jesus brought the donkey. Jesus has brought the donkey and in adoration, his disciples hoist him up and our text picks up in verse 36 as they begin to ride into the city. And it says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road and As he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount Olives, the whole multitudes of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the the mighty works that they had seen. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, people who had come to Jerusalem to to gather for the Passover. So this was a religious week. So there were religious people. And they saw this man from Galilee coming in, I mean, from Nazareth, coming in on an angle, riding a donkey. And they said, hey, man, hey, hey, isn't that Jesus from Nazareth, the one that that just raised Lazarus from the dead? And so they said, yeah, yeah. I heard he walks on water. Like, I heard he performs miracles. He's healed people. Yeah, but you see what he's on? He's on a donkey. Being religious people, they knew exactly what that meant. Wait, some people already say he's the king of Jews. And now he's on a donkey? This is exactly what our Bibles say. Zechariah, that he would come humbly and on donkey. This, this is him. And so along with the disciples, people became, became unhinged. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's the king of kings. Here comes the Messiah. Hosanna in the highest. Taking off their cloaks, putting it down before him, grabbing Palms we see from other Gospels, which represent victory. This was a tradition from the Maccabeans hundreds of years before. And they grab it, and they're waving it, the victorious king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We are here to worship you. It was awesome. 
people that had come full circle that, that this is the Jesus. This is the Messiah, the one who was promised. So people were excited, but not everybody was excited. Those party poopers. The Pharisees. I was ruining my day. The Pharisees, who had been really uh, caused a lot of strife by this guy, Jesus. This one who was healing, making blind men see on the Sabbath. People were worshiping him, taking power from me. People were looking to him for religious leadership. We are the Pharisees of Jerusalem. How dare they? And so they say to Jesus as he's riding on his donkey, he says, hey, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. Tell them to shut up. They don't know what they're talking about. This blasphemy, you're not the king of the Jews. Tell them to be quiet. Enough with this blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Be quiet. And Jesus says, hey, look, Pharisee. <clears throat> even if I told them all to be quiet, even if I silenced every mouth that had ever existed, even a rock would shout, praise into my name. Do you know why? Because I'm the king of everything. I'm the king of the cosmos. I'm not just the king of Jerusalem. I'm not just the king of the Jews. I am the king of creation. I made you and I made that rock and if you silenced one of my men for a second, that rock, would, I would just be like, rock, talk. And he'd be like, blessed is the one in the name of the Lord. Because that is how awesome I am as king. I made that rock. I made you. I made all things, which makes me the king of the cosmos. Jesus declares his kingship. He said, even the rocks would shout my name. That's who I am. We arrive to a part of the story we don't really talk about. When we talk about Palm Sunday, I don't remember talking about this in Sunday school. But after Jesus says this, he fixes his eyes once again on the city of Jerusalem. And it says, when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Wait, what? Jesus just declared who he was, mighty in power, making rocks talk. And he's weeping, and if you look at that word, the original word, the translation is like bawling, wailing. I mean, he is so upset. Why? Why is Jesus weeping on this tri day of triumphal entry? I'll tell you why Jesus is weeping. The city in which he arrived to, the city he loved, and the people within it had been blinded and deceived by the world. And even upon his arrival, they were infatuated with the world. They created idols of money and possessions, success, and replaced the worship of the true king with worship of earthly things. We'll see further along in this chapter that he would enter into his father's house, the temple, and he would go in to find a marketplace, that because it was the holy week of Passover, that businessmen had moved in 
and of all things, to sell sacrifices so people could be in right, right standing with God. <coughs> Excuse me. Moved in to sell animals that they could slay as a sacrifice on this holy holiday. Hey, get your blood over here, five dollars. That's what they were doing. And Jesus walks in and he's, a, he's furious. He was weeping over this temple. But I'll tell you what, before we go and judge Jerusalem too hard, we could find ourselves in the city that day. Because here's, the, here's what Jerusalem was doing. You can tell me if it sounds familiar. What Jerusalem was doing was giving their time, their energy, and their attention to other things, to earthly things. And let me tell you a secret about yourself. What? Let me tell you about it. You were created for one purpose, just one. People will ask, what is the purpose of life? And they'll get all, you know, spacey about it. I'll tell you your purpose. You were created for one reason and one reason alone, and it's to worship God. The way that the catechism puts it is, you were made to glorify and enjoy God forever. Do you understand that that is in the DNA of every one of you and every man that's ever been created? The, the desire to worship? That, is your, that was your purpose. When God created man, he said, Boom, they're going to have these limbs and they're going to be able to do all this. But the main purpose is going to be for them to worship me. The problem is when sin entered the world, it distorted what we worshipped. And instead of being able to worship the one true God in which we were created to, we find other things. We still have that desire to worship, but it has become not God. So Jesus is weeping because we've made kings of earthly things and we have forgotten about the one true king who deserves worship. This is why Jesus is weeping. So who is your king? Is Jesus looking at you and with a sorrow heart, sorrowful heart? Who is your king? And I'll tell you who your king is. It's anything or anyone that you find yourself infatuated with, consumed with, other than God. I'll be transparent and tell you one of my biggest ones, one of my biggest kings in my life. Being a good father. That sounds great. The problem is, is that that is where I place all of my hope in. Because if I'm a good father, then I'll, I'll feel fulfilled. If I'm a good father, I'll be satisfied. If I'm a good father, then I'll be fulfilled and I'll experience joy. If I'm a good father, then I'll be do- fulfilling my purpose. But I'm worshiping that. I am worshiping, in a sense, my son. And maybe it's a job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your possessions, your stuff, whatever it is. If you need, to, if you need the formula to figure out what it is, take, some, take whatever it is in your life that you find yourself spending all your time thinking about and spending your time with, and if it was removed, would, could you go on? Because if you can't, that's your king. That is your king. Whoever you are serving has become your king. And, and I'll tell you a secret. 
Your purpose was not to be a good dad. You were created not to just be rich, to be well-known, to be fit, to be well-liked and just enjoy all the things of the earth. And all these things are good, but it's not your purpose. Those are added bonuses. Your purpose is to worship the king. You are under strict commandment by your king to love him and to love others. Jesus would say, this is my commandment to you, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to love others as yourself. This is the command that he gives us, to obey and to love. To obey. Now, I'm not talking about obedience perfectly. This is not a message about, about you being able to satisfy God and get in a right standing with God because you're able to keep all the rules. That's not what it's about. It's about obedience, not perfect obedience. Perfect obedience, that's what the cross was for. Christ did that for us. You are already in a right standing with God. But to serve your king, to obey, should be where we set our hearts. So King Jesus, with a sympathetic heart, weeps for his city, and he weeps for his people. And this is, it's common to call Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. But with all this in mind, what Christ was entering was a tearful entry, was sorrowful over his city. He had seen their desire of worship to be misplaced. Now, I want to say something out loud that you probably all are thinking, both believer and unbeliever alike, because I've said this to myself before. And the question is this. Why do I need a king? Why? I've got things under control. I have my life and the situations within it under control. Why do I need a king? Better yet, why do I need Jesus as my king? What is he offering me that is worth my obedience? What is he offering me that's worth my reverence? Why is he worthy? And I don't know why you came here this morning or what you expected to get, but I'm about to tell you the truth and it might feel really uncomfortable. But the reason that you need Jesus as your king is because the fate of your soul for all of eternity depends on it. I would not be a good pastor if I sat up here and told you how awesome you are and told you that everything's good. Keep going the way you're going. Keep going to church every Sunday. No. If Jesus is not your king, you're in trouble. You are playing a dangerous game of damnation. That's the truth. That's why you need Jesus as your king. And I'll tell you something else that's going to be uncomfortable to hear. But hey, why not? I'm already on a roll. <laughs> if you're a Christian, and this is said to me often, I don't feel close to the Lord right now. Or... I don't feel like he's my king. I believe that he died for me. I know I'm going to heaven and I'm saved by his grace. 
I know that I'm forgiven of my sins. I know, I know all the stuff that Christians should be saying, but I just don't feel that intimate relationship that people talk about. What is that communion you talk about? What is that presence of the Lord that you talk about? I don't feel that, Pastor. And the simple answer to that is this. What's your life like with him? Because Jesus is described by the word of God as the word. The word who became flesh. And so my simple question to you is, what does your scripture life look like? I know that's convicting because I can barely say it myself. How can you enjoy communion with the king when you don't spend any time with him? How can you enjoy all the good things that God has in store for you when this is closed? This is the way that the king wants to show you who he is. This is the way where you get to know who Jesus is. Everything that you need to know about who this king of the cosmos is, is found in here. And if you are ignoring his very word, you are ignoring the king of kings. Hard truths to hear. But let this be the day things change. Let this be the day you say, you know what? As a citizen of my king, I am going to enter into the presence of my king and serve him. You know how I told you about the two donkey or two uh, horses? There's, there's the donkey and then the white horse. Well, Jesus had made that entrance that day into Jerusalem, but Jesus makes another entrance found in Scripture. He does make another entrance, and it's on another four-legged animal, and it's found in Revelation 19. This is describing the coming of Christ, and it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is King Jesus. When he rides again on another animal like that, it's going to be for the final time when victory, saying, I have conquered sin, I have conquered death, and now all of it has been taken away. No more sorrows, no more tears. In my kingdom, this will be the forgiven nation of God and they will serve under my reign and they will be the blessed one of God. That's who our king is. We talked about picturing Jesus earlier and I'm gonna try and exercise as we close with prayer. Everybody close your eyes. And I want you to picture Jesus, and I'm going to help you with this image in a second. So you're picturing Jesus, and whatever that image is, I want you to hear how the word of God describes him, and this will help with your picture. Eyes closed. Listen to Isaiah describe the Lord. I see the Lord, and he's sitting upon this throne, and he's high, and he's lifted up, and the train of this robe fills the entire temple. And there's angels all around them. And they're singing, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Father God, I thank you that your word tells us that you stand at the door and knock. Christ, that you are the one who cries out to us to lift up our gates of resistance, to break down the walls of stubbornness and let the king of glory come in. Lord, there is an entrance that still needs to be taken in some of our hearts today, and that is the entrance into our heart. Lord, by your mighty power, intercede for us. Lord, crush these things in our lives that we put in the place of worshiping you, the King of Kings. It is in you alone that we have the power to stand and the power to obey. It is in you alone that we have forgiveness because you are our King who is the sacrificial King willingly giving your life for us. May that cause us to want to shout for joy. Blessed are you, O Lord. I pray that now we would walk out of here renewed as citizens in the kingdom of God. That we would walk out of here with a new faith that says we have been commanded to love by our God and our King, in whose name we pray it is you, Jesus. Amen.